I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is the final entry in our series, God and the Whole Person. As we conclude weeks of conversation around the mind, the body, and the soul, how do we offer all of who we are to Jesus in faithful discipleship in this season of our lives and church? And I was thinking this week about the way that people get spiritual, even if they aren't normally so, when their bodies break down, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. A bad accident breaks the body or a terrible illness begins to whittle it down. Few people just sort of sit back and enjoy the ride. Usually the reaction leans one way or the other, either one way, God, God's happy thoughts, someone or something fix my body. Or the other way, I'm heading toward the light, mama. You know, that there's something beyond all this. If you get super spiritual all of a sudden, fare thee well, cruel world. All in or all out. It's fascinating because the trend of a holistic worldview is all the rage right now, despite the fact that we often lean one way or another, either all spiritual or all physical. And yet, the body seems to matter until it doesn't. The soul seems to matter until it doesn't. My soul is departing this cruel temporal form. People talk this way when they get really sick or when they're confronting their own mortality. My body is dying. Someone, something, anything, stop this horrible indignity of death. It's funny because in uh, social media wellness speak, integrated holistic health is the cat's pajamas right now. I don't know if you know that. My God, the term mental health seems to have lost all meaning as quickly as words like gaslight and literally. As a cultural colloquialism, mental health has essentially become two words that you sandwich together when you don't want to do something or see someone. Now, if you've been around Van City for any length of time, it should be obvious that we are not anti-mental health. We almost constantly encourage therapy. We hand out a list of recommended counselors like it's candy, including professionals that most of our leaders have seen for years. And this entire series has been about the irrevocable connection between the mind and the body and the soul. But... As is often the case, the spiritual disciplines crucial to the Jesus tradition, like things like simplicity or social justice, they occasionally become cast into the diluting currents of trendiness. And since the way of Jesus is about lifelong formation and self-denial, and because both take a really long time, and because pop culture wellness is often about fast fixes and easy tweaks and summary statements, Mental health becomes, at least in some social circles, an excuse for unhealthy behavior, redefining buzzwords like boundaries or wellness to serve selfish purposes. Earlier this week, a pastor friend of mine shared this article published earlier this month titled, Is Therapy, Is Therapy Speak Making Us Selfish? In it, one journalist observed, in recent years, therapy concepts like self-care and boundary setting have shown up everywhere online with Instagram accounts and other social media communities sharing mantras and advice advocating for self-actualization. TikTok therapists offer tips for struggling with anxiety, self-esteem, and people-pleasing. Therapy speak, prescriptive language describing certain psychological concepts and behaviors, can be found everywhere from group chats to dating apps. Now, we have more language to advocate for ourselves and our needs, whether it be canceling plans when we feel overwhelmed 
or ending relationships that no longer serve us. The article goes on to describe the experiences of a certain group of people who have been dumped or ghosted or called out or kind of jailed in unforgiveness with therapy-speak language under the guise of mental health. One person interviewed told the story of a sibling who, re- who refused to speak to parents desperate to reconcile with him. This is the quote. He created this whole thing about his safety, his boundaries, his rules, the sibling said. Obviously, that's important. But it feels like he came into it with the framework like he's the only real person in the world and everybody else has to do exactly what he says to make him safe. We like holistic health when it serves us. At least I know I do. Our emotional needs, our mental health, our physical wellness. And more to my point, it's one way that we do bring the body and the mind and the soul together in the world of ordinary popular culture to serve our own inward-focused purposes. Sometimes we like to do that. Sometimes we like whole-person talk, even in church circles. But then, if you set out to follow Jesus, whole-person theology has something to say about, say, gender careful. An integrated theology has something to say about what we eat and what we drink. Slow down. When we learn following Jesus with all our personhood, all our habits, entertainment, diet and fitness, money, relationships, pregnancy, parenting, singleness, celibacy, sexuality, and we're back to compartmentalizing again. And I get it. I don't mean to sound dismissive. For people in this room, A conversation about how one follows Jesus as embodied people with a mind and a body and a soul aggravates tension and anxiety and pain. A theology of the body, for example, can raise guards or open old wounds. What does this mean for those of us who have battled sickness for years? Or for those of us who have struggled with our weight or eating disorders or with our sexuality or gender? And of course, I, as one of your pastors, cannot adequately address or empathize with or even understand each unique struggle represented within this beautifully varied community. So from the outset, let me remind each of us that this incredible, bewildering, and comforting truth precious to disciples of Jesus for more than 2,000 years continues to ring true tonight. God was and is embodied in Jesus. God, in Jesus, voluntarily experienced literal blood, sweat, and tears. God, in Jesus, battled within and against the finite vulnerabilities of the human form, the temptations of the body, the pain of the body, and even the breaking of the body. God, according to the scriptures, is spirit. But God was and is flesh and blood in Jesus as well. This means that we are not alone. Open your Bibles to, wait for it, Genesis, that's right. Chapter 2 this time, that's right, yep, skipping right over number 1. Is that better, Abby? Tonight, we are concluding what has been two months of talking about what it means to follow Jesus with our entire personhood, our souls, our minds, and our physical bodies, all made in the image of God and submitted to the will of God as we learn to follow Jesus together. Are you guys okay? All right, great. Ready to do a little work? You're awake? Great. Thank you, Alexia. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's stand and... Did you say gaslighting? (laughs) 
Let's stand and read from Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust, or a human being from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, or even soul, that word can be translated. Skip down to verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, notice the physical language, and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. These words are inspired by God. Thank you, guys. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, if you keep reading this story, the serpent, the snake, the devil shows up in the very next sentence. In fact, the final words in the Genesis story before the devil appears with his lie, with his distortion of the truth, with his deception, is this. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. In a God-designed garden, overflowing with beautiful, creative potential, partnership and collaboration with God himself on offer, nothing to hide, no shame, no secrets. Adam and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame whatsoever. Remember, they are embodied and in the physical world. This is not some kind of spiritual existence in a perfect heaven jungle. This is here on earth in bodies, physical. There's work, there's creativity, there's art, there's sex and intimacy and desire. Desire and everything, all of it, is shamelessly open before God. There's nothing to hide. Why wouldn't it be open to God? Sex without lust, work without toil, intimacy without selfishness, art without corruption, nakedness with no shame. And then you turn the page, which do it. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Look at how the story goes, beginning with verse 6. Look at that. No Genesis 1 at all tonight. We're moving along, man. Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. For the first time in the story of Homo sapien, the human beings look at the world from an entirely new angle. Not the way God sees it, but the way the snake did. God says things are one way, and a new voice rebuts. God is lying, and you know better, so let's move on. Let's be free. Sound familiar? It's the same dichotomy against which we battle every single day. Tale as old as time. Kids do this. They, they come of age in a parent's household, often, not always, but often unquestioningly so, at least for a while. Parents tell them what to believe, and then kids more or less believe it. And then in steps some jerk of a classmate or something and says, nah, your parents are full of snot. My daughter Isla is in the first grade. First grade! And her jaded little friend told her the other day that God, and, the, and I quote, is just a fairy tale made up to make people feel better. <laughs> it's true. She came home telling me this. Now, Isla is a confident young lady, so she shrugged it right off. She's like, isn't that nuts? This girl talking about God is a fairy tale. Girl, you know, she doesn't even believe in God. What a world. And I just added to it. I was like, and God is going to judge that little girl. <laughs> I didn't say that. I obviously didn't say that. I was more thoughtful than that. 
All of us know what it's like to assume something is true, at least for a while, because that's all we've been told, maybe even for most of our lives, until some new voice, some other perspective, for better or for worse, suggests otherwise. Before this whole scene with the snake, Eve had spent her entire life understanding the world the way God laid it out for her in the beginning, and she trusted that God's perspective was the accurate take on reality, until a new voice comes along and asks, is it really like that? And then completely rebuts it. It's a lie. What if it's not like that at all? It isn't. And the problem, listen, the, prop, the sin is not that Eve allowed her poor, fragile ears to even hear for a moment something other than what she was raised to believe. There's nothing wrong with that. You'd have to leave the world to avoid it, as if God were so fragile and insecure. God is the one who designed Eve with freedom. The problem, the sin, is that she accepts the new story in an instant, even though it runs contrary to all she's known to be good and true. God is lying. God is lying. And in a moment, a new lens obscured the old way of seeing the world and the people in it. Sex meet lust for the first time. Work falls to toil, intimacy ensnared by selfishness, art say hello to corruption, nakedness overshadowed by shame. First, the story went, Adam and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame, but then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. Everything in this story is happening to people, embodied people in a time and place. The emphasis of sin's effect on the way that humans see and understand their nakedness, their bodies, isn't an accident. And as the Bible's epic narrative unfolds across pages and centuries and generations, the important recurring motif, the symbol that encapsulates faithfulness and rebellion becomes, in the story, marriage a metaphor both physical and spiritual. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel is the adulterous wife, and God is the heartbroken victim of infidelity. Isn't it fascinating that God and the authors of Scripture reach back into Genesis to that earthy, flesh and blood, embodied portrait of the man and his wife, naked, feeling no shame, physical, sexual, human, corporeal. So look at it this way. One way of summarizing the way the Bible understands and depicts the mess of the human predicament is this. We are unfaithful to God, and in order to be healed and redeemed, we need faithfulness to God. Now, that probably comes as a, surprise, as a surprise to few of us, but contrasted against the story with which we are being presented by the world in which we live every single day. The problem is that we are unfaithful to ourselves, and the solution is faithfulness to the self. Unhappiness, the world constantly argues, spools out from denying yourself. If you don't indulge your mental, emotional, and physical desires, are you even you? If you can't talk how you want, behave how you want, vocalize how you feel, sleep with who you want to sleep with, eat what you want to eat, buy what you want to buy, you're less you, you're oppressed, stifled. Uh, my wife Abby used to play me this god-awful pop song to bother me. Uh, I, she used to use it to wake me up in the morning. It's miserable. I don't, I don't remember who it was, uh, and I don't want anyone to tell me. I want a blissful ignorance. Uh, the chorus was something like, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it, you know? 
And that's sort of the ethos in a nutshell. I know I sound like old man Josh up here, and ironically, I enjoy music with lyrics infinitely more offensive, so who am I to talk? But the ethos is that whole idea, you know, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it, acknowledge, express, indulge your desire, and be free. And I should point out that though this feels, for many of us, an overwhelmingly ever-present predominant worldview, that whole hashtag, you do you, do what makes you happy, be free, it's really not. The sort of self-actualization as freedom narrative is pretty new, almost entirely Western, overwhelmingly American, and mostly relegated to young, affluent white people. That said, this is where we live, and this is when we live, so this is the air that we breathe. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Think it, want it, the body is a tool for indulgence. And this story assumes that what we think and what we want are, by default, true and good. To deny ourselves would be to deny what is true and good. But no one actually believes that. Just poke your head into the hellish hornet's nest of the socio-political vitriol of the last few years. It's pretty obvious that everyone thinks there are good guys and bad guys. We know, we already know that human beings can be corrupt. We all assume that we're the righteous ones and we're the virtuous ones and it's the other side that sucks. Sure, people can be bad, but not us. What we want is good. Who says? We do. But being true to yourself, quite frankly, is uh, overrated. You're not always so great. Welcome to Van City. You, your mental, emotional, spiritual, physically embodied self, you and me, we're kind of a mixed bag at best. We are at, at all levels and to some degree broken. Think of it like this. In Jesus' manifesto for life in the kingdom of God, the collection of teachings that we call the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about divorce and adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now notice, Jesus acknowledges sin in bodily action and in corrupted desire. Now, of course, And the story of the scriptures, for a man to sleep with someone who isn't his wife is a heinous kind of bodily evil. It's in the language of the New Testament, sinning against your own body. But that same sinful corruption permeates a man's desire when he looks at a woman made in God's image as if she were little more than an object, fodder for sexual fantasy. And the sin of the body is made manifest in the mind and so corrupts the soul the exact same way. God's vision is for erotic love laid shamelessly bare with his vision for human flourishing. One man, one woman, and a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant. That's the biblical sex ethic, the sex ethic of Jesus, and the sex ethic of Christians for centuries. And then the snake comes along and says, not so. The body can be little more than a tool for sexual expression and gratification. And if you can use the body to express sexual desire, isn't that freedom? If you can't, are you really free? Are you even you? Anyone who says otherwise is victimizing you, and being a victim just feels oh so good. And lest any of us excuse ourselves from the universal predicament of broken sexuality, remember, the tentacles of sexual sin and corruption have reached out into the entire human experience. The Christian with the secret, numbed and despairing, his or her addiction to pornography. 
the boyfriend and girlfriend, the fiancé and fiancée fooling around or living together or sleeping together because, hey, close enough, the married couple who can't untangle their sex life from their pain and avoidance or who weaponize or withhold intimacy or, or who don't have intimacy to speak of either way. The young man with pronouns and pride flags in his social media bio happily convinced Jesus would eagerly update his antiquated worldview if he were given the chance. The widow or widower in a panic, scrambling to replace the terrible void with something, anything, anyone, rather than confronting the terrible, screaming emptiness. And of course, of course, the pastor on stage, summarizing everyone else's broken relationships with convenient little hypothetical archetypes. It's all of us sowing fig leaves, covering ourselves, hiding in our quaking bodies, fractured by sin. And it was God himself who stooped down to the indignity of the fragile, finite, physical form to become himself embodied in solidarity with his unrequited love. And in the body, Jesus, our master and teacher, offers neither a cold, detached asceticism, hide away from the world, don't look, don't touch, don't taste, as if we were Buddhists or Jedi or something, nor the reckless hedonism of our time and place, as if our every desire were best indulged. Jesus instead teaches both feasting and fasting. Even in our post-Eden world, there are times for food and drink and lavish celebration to touch and see and taste naked, unashamed vulnerability before God and his goodness and what we see of the coming kingdom in the here and now. I was thinking about this this week as I was touched deeply by a cell phone video. Can you believe it? Just this last week, one of our overseers, Tab, he got to baptize his son Caleb at his uh, school chapel. The beautiful moments around about, watch for the thumbs up over there. There you go. Yep. This is an occasion for feasting and celebration, to withhold or to treat this as an occasion for mourning, to put the body through the imposed pain of hunger at such a time as this would be inappropriate. God himself is celebrating. Fast now? Are you kidding? That's what I imagine God saying. It's time to party. Jesus orients the table of feasting in the context of what God says is good. That is celebratory. That is a time to look and touch and see and taste to be completely unashamed and vulnerable before God. And he commands the obedience of fasting in light of what God says will hurt us, not to withhold, not to be stingy, not out of arbitrary rule mongering. Just as I tell my own children, run outside, play, jump, scream, have fun, but do not step in the street. Indulgence and abstinence in their appropriate places, feasting and fasting. And please listen, both of these things are meant to direct and redirect us to the truth of Jesus and the love of God the Father. One, not more so than the other, meaning just as a father's tearful, beaming joy as he stands over his son in the waters of baptism amidst roars of worship and celebration, just as that draws our attention to the goodness of God, so too can our nights of clenched fists loneliness when we refuse to act on sexual desire that is beyond the scope of Jesus' good vision for our lives, even though it's hard and even though it hurts. Just as a sprawling dinner table ornamented with mouth-watering delights and encircled by friends, as laughter and love and music fill the room points us to the coming kingdom of God, so too, when we do not eat 
and do not drink for the sake of the body's sanctity or health or for justice or as we seek God in fasting or as we mourn tragedy and lament injustice. Just as mission and vocation and good work bring us to life with creative energy and meaning and purpose, so too days and seasons of slow, quiet rest and no work. Long days of empty schedules and quiet hours when there is nowhere to be and nothing to get done and no need to get out of the house or hustle, but to simply sit and be before God. Just as the wedding feast points to God, so does the funeral dirge. God did not embody us for detachment from all earthly delights, nor for the indulgence of any and every desire, but instead to recognize and celebrate that which he declares good with freedom unashamedly and to trust and obey his parameters for human flourishing as the author of life itself. He made it up. He probably knows a thing or two about how it works best. Within this beautiful, complex dynamic, within the journey of feasting and fasting, both arduous and exhilarating, journeys the disciple of Jesus. All of her, all of him, mind, soul, and body before God. All of us tangled predicament of the human condition and all of us being brought more into the redeeming fire of God's cleansing love that we learn to walk with Jesus together. And the longer we do so, what happens in the mind affects the soul, affects the body. What happens in the body affects the mind, affects the soul. The cultural script is, if it feels good, it's important to do it. If you want to do it, then it's authentic, and authentic is good. The TikTok therapy speak script insists, your perceived emotional needs rule all. Does anyone or anything infringe on your felt needs? Boundaries, mental health. And across centuries of the Jesus movement, the alternative society of the church continues to come together and say, no, freedom is in both feasting and fasting. Jesus is king, not us. True spiritual maturity is in giving ourselves away and in the language of the New Testament, regarding others above ourselves. The body, like the mind, like the soul, our very desire is, yes, broken and breaking and in want of healing and redemption. Yes, on a coming day, somewhere on the horizon when Jesus sets the world to rights and makes everything new, but also now, tonight. For weeks now, we've been on about this, bringing the fragmented way so many of us tend to understand ourselves as distinctly spiritual and uniquely physical with little to no overlap into the entirety of discipleship. All of us increasingly brought before and into the healing fire of God's love where Jesus asks, as he did weeks ago after Ash Wednesday, what is it that you want me to do for you? Within each and every one of our twisted forms, mind, body, and soul, made in the image of God but marred by sin and suffering, reaching out to the Master and calling, have mercy on me. You have his ear, and he is asking again and again, what do you want me to do for you? I know as well as anyone else that when someone scratches at the walls that we build up to keep the painful work of healing out, Tuning out becomes a coping mechanism. We think, uh, that sounds great, just not tonight. We think, 
later, yes. When everything is just right, maybe then, maybe later. But my encouragement tonight, as it was the first evening of this series, is don't shut me out. This is not a trick. It's not rhetorical. It's not a test. And it's not simple. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And by that, I mean, what do you really want? Not a magic trick, not a simple fix. In this season, at this stage, what do you want Jesus to do for you? With all the complications and deep hidden pain and likely disruption, if you were to bring the secret out into the light or to walk the difficult road of healing, the possible ensuing chaos, your heart laid bare before God, what do you want? The funny thing is that God already knows, and He is waiting for you to be honest with Him, just as He waits for you to be honest with yourself. Some of you allow yourselves to entertain that question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? But you cannot help but suspect it doesn't really matter. Maybe you think somewhere in the back of your mind, you could ask all you want, but really God's going to do what He was going to do one way or the other. I read this quote earlier in the series from Dallas Willard. It's one of my favorites. He says that God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. So, allow yourself to imagine it actually matters and that it could change everything. And consider the question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? freedom from some destructive cycle of thinking, deliverance from an addiction? Do you want to change your broken sexual desire or, or your eating habits, depression or a twisted back, infection in your body or in your heart, a sense of numbness or emptiness or loneliness? All of it from your bones to your beating heart, spiraling up through your nervous system into the firing synapses of the brain and reaching back into your story and your hurt and your desire, the things you have done and the things done to you, your very DNA, all of it is you. And God knows all of it. And you get to bring all of it before Jesus. He isn't afraid of it or intimidated by it. Please listen to me when I say this. He is not disgusted with you. He does not reject you. He is not finished with you. There's no part of you that he does not see and know. You at your most vulnerable, you at your most authentic, the you only a few people really know and the you no one knows. Your deepest, darkest secret. And you get to bring all of it before Jesus. He isn't afraid or intimidated. He isn't disgusted. He doesn't reject you. He isn't finished with the work that he has begun in you. 
In my own journey of discipleship, I'm constantly learning that following Jesus, like life itself, never retains one static, simple shape. What was most important to me and for my spiritual formation about 10 years ago is not what preoccupies my prayers these days. But maybe it will again. Who knows? Even these last few months have been this kind of strange dichotomy, a lot of pain and conflict and discouragement in helping lead a church, but a lot of beauty and joy and love in my family. And neither thing is always one thing. Both of them kind of overlap and blur. And I am, in some ways, discovering more each passing year who I think that God has made me to be and is asking me to be in this season through all the work that I've done over the last few years and um, spiritual formation and therapy and now spiritual direction. And in some ways, this person, I think God has asked me to be the person that God has made me to be, who I've been all along, is not at all what I was expecting. And some of that feels really great, and some of it hurts, some of it's disappointing. And as my body, body you know, takes longer to heal from minor injuries and more of my hair turns gray, I'm aware for the first time in these four decades of my life that time passes in the body as well. And obviously, I have a long way to go in terms of learning and growing spiritual formation, but I've already celebrated so many occasions of feasting, and I have wearied so many seasons of fasting already with more of both to come. And I am, we are, in all of it, in every year, every season, every stage, only children before God. Really, at the end of it all, we're only desperate servants before Jesus the King. Whether we are new converts or old sages, amateurs or masters, young at heart or old souls, all of us will find ourselves again and again stooped along the roadside, tyrannized by our own brokenness and the brokenness of others with no eloquent prayers or sermons, but the simple, undignified cry, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus finds us there again and again, whether the pain or the sickness or the sin is in our hearts or our minds or our bodies. And he asks us, what do you want me to do for you? Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.